Welcome back to the podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Chef Notepad. You can easily cost and store all your recipes while you can focus on the food. What does that mean? Check it out on Instagram, Chef Notepad. If you're a chef or a business owner, it is an extremely important tool for you to know how much things are costing and so that you can make money and cook delicious food for beautiful people. Check it out. Big savior in all restaurants. Okay. Also brought to you by the Suncoast Fresh ordering app. How cool is that? We've got our own ordering app finally. Uh, you can uh, check out pricing. You can do orders from wherever, whenever. You can have uh, access to all the weekly specials, save some money there. All your invoices are there. There's newsletters there. Create your own pantry list. This thing is a lifesaver. You know, multiple users, heaps of features. But coming up today in the podcast, we have Yoast Backer. Yoast is, you know, he's fucking amazing. Like, he is like groundbreaking, super knowledgeable on so many levels. He's an artist who is doing some amazing work, which the whole world needs. I think he should be on Joe Rogan's podcast. He should be on the news every night of the week. He's an amazing guy. Anyway, listen to this. It's funny as hell. He talks about his whole life story that gets into the future food system. It is amazing. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Yoast Backer. We are? Yeah. Yoast, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for coming to the greenhouse. <laughs> All the way. Well, this is um, an amazing thing we're doing here. And uh, I think there's probably a few of our listeners that don't know who you are. Um, tell me a little bit how we got to this greenhouse slash future food system. What's your story? A quick quick version is yeah. I grew up in Holland and um, probably my, creatives, my creativity um, was helped by a woman who was my grade one teacher who said to my mum, you really need to get Yoast to spend some time with some local artists. So I was in grade one and uh, doing lots of painting and sketching. And so my mum contacted a local landscape artist called Jan Holleberg and said, do you mind having Yoast every Wednesday afternoon? And so from age five to age nine, I spent every Wednesday afternoon with him and he taught me how to do charcoal, started with charcoal sketching and then uh, everything to watercolor, oil paints ultimately. And, and he was the one that sort of made me see lights and shadows and how trees were affected by wind or how humans impacted um, buildings. And, and so by the time I came to Australia, my dad always wanted to migrate to Australia. And he kind of left Holland because he was sick of how, how polluted and, 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 you know, Holland was a very sick place in the early 80s. Acid rain, you know, the leaves were being basically falling off the trees in the middle of summer because of all the pollution from central Europe, Germany, and, and Holland is like the lowlands, you know, so everything ends up in Holland. It's like the end of the river. <clears throat> and my dad was really into the natural environment and he said, let's just go to Australia. He had family here. And uh, so at the age of 49, he migrated to Australia and, I, and we all came. And I kind of left my creativity, artistic side behind in Holland and helped build the family farm, the family business. And we started, um, you know, on working at night and on weekends while everybody worked full-time jobs and I couldn't wait to get out of school after school. And, and that's when I really learned that you can just about use anything to build a cool room. And we needed a hot room to simulate bulbs going through a, you, you know, a fake summer. So I remember building a hot room out of just straw and shit that my brothers found on other farms. And, and that really had a big impression on me so that you could just build stuff. You didn't need to go to a builder or you didn't need a plumber. You could just do everything yourself, you know, and uh, pouring concrete ourselves and uh, building sheds and machinery. And I learned how to weld and making like, um, there wasn't a lot of equipment here for, for bulb growers, whereas my dad knew, and we couldn't afford to bring equipment in from Holland. So we'd weld our own planting machine or, you know, um, we grew tulips and lilliums and uh, lycoris and nerines. And, and so, yeah, from age probably 10 to 16, all I wanted to do was leave school and help my brothers and my family on the farm. And then I did leave school. I was in year 11 and uh, went on the family farm. And my dad, when I was 18 said, you know, I was gonna buy my mum's share. My mum was gonna, um, you know, uh, do a bit less. And then um, dad said, you should spend some time away. Just go and travel. It's like he knew. So I did, I went to Nepal and I was obsessed 
back then with flowers and and uh, I wanted to see the wild forest, rhododendron forest in flowers. I went to Nepal in spring and saw wild Daphne and rhododendrons and climbed and spent a lot of time there. I spent um, six months in Holland with my old friends and family and came back and said to the family, I actually, I've decided I don't want to go into family business. And my dad was, to his credit, said, yep, it's fine. Almost like he knew. And so that was 1993 and I started um in south melbourne with a guy called tony leonardis who had just mushrooms exotic and wild he was kind of the first person in australia to bring in you know hundreds of different varieties of mushrooms from all over the world and and uh we met on the dance floor at the chevron and and uh just became mates through other mates and uh and he said well mushrooms great at four degrees so are flowers so why don't we rent a warehouse and we built a cool room together and we turned the upstairs office into space. We lived together through massive parties and I moved to South Melbourne and that's how I met Andrew Blake and, you know, the blue train and Con Christopolis and, and those guys were all buying uh, mushrooms from Tony and, and, uh, and one day, I, and I was, ex I was collecting flowers and exporting flowers to the Philippines and New Caledonia and uh, Hong Kong. Uh, I was big on, uh, my, dr my dream was to build a, an export business because Australia wasn't exporting any flowers and I believe we had this really incredible range that was completely out of the Dutch season. And um, I just fell in love with the hospitality scene, I suppose. I started selling box flowers to people like Andrew Blake and, uh, and um, yeah, one day I walked into Blue Train, which is this cranking kind of the first sort of that cafe doing breakfast to 2 a.m. thing, really amazing business in Melbourne at the time. I said, that is shit out the way you put my flowers in that vase and just changed it. And they said, far out, can you do that every week? And that's how my kind of career in floristry started. Wow. And that was the short start, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of people try, what's with the flowers and what's with this and what's yeah, with yeah. that? And how can no, you no, say, I love you know, it. But I love that you met your mate at your party at a party. Can you remember where you met me? Um, it, um, Noma? Was it at Noma that we met? No. Or was it before then? It was before then. It was at, I crashed someone's wedding. Whose wedding was that? Uh, oh, I was in town and I got in, I rang up all my right. friends and everyone was at the same wedding. He was a chef with Matt at Sol, at Sol. Hey, Yeah, it was Flo. Flo, that's right. Yeah. Wonderful right. human. Yes. On the rooftop. Yeah. In Burke Street. Yeah. So we That was a, a bloody awesome wedding too. <laughs> yeah. And to not be invited, and the bride had no idea who I was, and she was passing me in the hallway going, who are you? They're living in Bordeaux now. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I wonder sort of. Three that, kids. I've lost him on, yeah. the, on the radar, yeah. That's right. Okay. But then, yeah, that was not long after Renee did the Sydney restaurant, and we met that night there as well. And, yeah. And plus up in, because um, I was actually going to do a greenhouse up in Brisbane. I went up there so many times. Be a good spot. D d different tropical weather. Oh, that's I, I, I was so excited. I was so excited. Yeah. I volunteered to do. Done. So you know you had a unique upbringing, and I think um, um, that that sort of spells a lot on um, alternate education, internal um, alternate brains. You know, we've all got. A, I'm like completely dyslexic, and you know, I think that that does give you that different thing. I'm sure you're not dyslexic, but um, you know, I think that just a different approach, whether it be looking at the shadows and the. You know, like I often walk around, I'm touching the surface of leaves, and yeah, and I, and I think that there's a there is a different thing going on with some people, and not that it's good, bad, or you know, not judging it, but um, that different education that you got, which was a lot of home type stuff, yep. must have really uh, just got you in a position to be confident enough that it was okay to make mistakes throughout your whole childhood. Do you think that that's what helps you develop and what you're doing and be okay with making mistakes? Or was, that it was a combination. My mum's very creative, paints, sculpts, does pretty much anything from a creative side. And my dad was very practical, but a huge lover of nature, plus always grew veggies. So from the moment I could crawl, I was with my dad in the veggie patch, which is on the other side of the canal. So my dad had a pub. He was originally a farmer. And at the age of 18, 19, they said, you can't farm anymore. Your back's screwed, basically. So find another profession. And he was devastated because he loved it passionately, you know. And so he bought a pub and ran a pub for 25 years and became quite a famous publican because he was never want, never wanted to be a publican, but, you know, he was the farmer that became the publican, so the farmers all went to him, you know, the, in, the, in the community. And so 
the first six months of my life, we lived above a pub and then my mum and dad bought a house. But um, there's that always that kind of, I think, connect to the hospitality side and it probably came from my dad. And But my dad was one of those guys that would just point stuff out, how birds flew or how things grew or why is that growing there? You know, why did that naturally grow there or just, and I've done the same with my kids, you know, just... And it's really interesting to see that they do that with their mates now. Sometimes I pick up and go, shit, that's, that's, they've got that from me, you know, because I think I remember doing an exhibition in, uh, in the early 2000s and I had these huge works and they were done on PVC pallets. All this shit was coming in from overseas on pallets made from PVC, which can't be recycled. It did my head in. And so I found this company that was reverse printing onto the truck liners that can't be recycled either because they're PVC. So these were huge works of art six meters by 2.4 meters, they were pallet size. I call them uh, stackable art, you know? And um, onto them, I printed these huge images of shadows. And uh, I remember this woman, she paid like 12 grand for one of these works, you know? She said, oh, I love this, you know, it's really powerful and really graphic and, and what is it? And I said, well, you actually walked over it when you walked into the gallery and she goes, what do you mean? And we just walked up, was it Space Furniture in Church Street? We walked up and I said, that's the shadow. And she goes, oh my God. And I said, the point is that the sh- I, f- I find shadows are really beautiful because we never look at them. You mm. know, we're always looking at the tree, but we're not looking at the shadow. Whereas the shadow is actually much, simp- much easier for the brain to view because there's not all the complexity of all the different things going on, you know. And my point was though, that all these images you've just paid a fortune for, but they're there. Mm. You're just not choosing to see them, you know, um, because there's shadows on the street path and on the footpath and on the road. and in front of you you've done some pretty amazing things a uh, shopping center i believe something that uh there's well that didn't end up happening but i did spend two and a half years working on it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that a great, that, that's a great story. that was with a, that was with a queensland qic oh really yeah. okay but it worked don't know but one day i think i'll still probably end up doing it <laughs> yeah, but yeah. uh yeah tell us uh what else have you done i we watched your um ted talk recently and um that talks about you've got a couple of businesses you got the building business yep is this well a- i don't really have a business so yeah, yeah, my yeah. business is really i'm an artist that you can commission to do stuff so um how it really started so i started as a florist and by by the end of the 90s you know melbourne was an incredibly exciting place in the late uh, 90s liquor license laws changed you know you had bars that were held 30 people open Everyone was making good money, and so there was lots of money to to spend on creativity. So at, in my in my prime, I, was, I had over a hundred venues that I did every week, and I really was proud of the fact that every venue was completely different. So you know, at the Harry Canary, I had jumper leads with trusses of green tomatoes, and then people would walk up the steps and grab them as they ripened, and then you'd go to the Gin Palace, which is fifty meters away, and there'd be complete, something completely different. I really wanted to make sure people walk in had no idea that I was the same guy but I always used waste. So the, the jumper leads were all out of a recycling yard, they were all being thrown away. I had hundreds of them and, and people go, why are you always using electrical wire? Because you know, back then, lots of stuff was coming in from China and then the, the, they would just not be approved. So you had like a mate of mine had a shipping container of jumper leads and a shipping container of extension leads that didn't meet the Australian, so they're just all going to landfill, you know? So, that, so I hung, stems of Brussels sprouts in venues in the, in the 90s. People go, what the fuck? Did you put all those Brussels sprouts on that stem? It's like, no, that's how they grow, you know? <laughs> it is. So for me, it was just all about like making, and I'd use like the, the arsen of the plant or the, what people would consider the ugly part of the plant or tamarillos, you know, most people didn't realize it. So I'd hang these huge tamarillo trees and, and clip all the leaves off and then they'd last for three, four weeks and then have that suspended, you know, in another venue. So, and I think there were four, three hat rest, no, five, three hat restaurants. I was doing all of them apart from the flower drum. And then the flower drum were going, you've got to do our flowers. I go, nah, I can't. Like, <laughs> to try and do the, all those places really differently was really hard, you know. But it was really exciting. And it was just, I could be as creative as I wanted to be. And it was, um, and at the same time, I was doing exhibitions in art galleries. So my work was selling as, as art as well. And again, always made from waste. So my, my passion was to make people realize that it's not waste. You've just paid 10 grand for that. That was in a rubbish bin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then it kind of evolved. And then I remember being invited to Flemington. And I was already doing work at Flemington, but more as a florist. And um, 
I'd never been. And I just remember walking around with Nonna Katsalidis, who's an architect here, and the two of us felt pretty out of place, you know. And um, it was like the complete opposite of what I'm about. It was about like waste everywhere, you know. And, um, and I just had an epiphany. I just thought, if I ever got an opportunity to do something, I'd make everything out of waste. And then I'd put a recycling facility in so that the compost could be recycled. And I'd make all the, every, all the, what all the people wore out of recycled materials. And anyway, about three months later, I get a phone call from Bruce Keyboard from the big group. Got a client, Macquarie Bank. They want to totally turn it on its head at Flemington. And we all put your name forward as being the one that could do it. Uh, we want you to meet the client. And I said, oh, I already know what I'm doing. He goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> I've got it in my head. This is what I'm doing. And he's gone, oh, that's great. Let's just meet the client first, you know? And anyway, we met the client. Client loved it. And that 2006, I um, built a pavilion that was covered in mint plants. We had 8,000 terracotta pots with beautiful mints growing in it because they were making a mint at the time, Macquarie Bank. <laughs> and the floor was made out of tires and the furniture was made out of packing crates and everything was made out of waste. And uh, Moss, I think, was the CEO. He walked in and he just went, what the fuck is this piece of shit? You know, like who, who came up with this? You know, he was so pissed off, apparently. And I kept thinking, I'm supposed to be at Macquarie Bank now. Like why? And Bruce Keyboard kept going, oh no, you've got to go, to, you've got to go here. And he was just trying to keep Yost away from Macquarie because he's going to get fucking torn apart here. And, you know, I was a bit confused. But of course, as people started to arrive, they go, oh, how fresh is this? You know, this is a whole new take on... This is awesome. And he's like, I gotta meet this guy. Who is this guy? You know, suddenly he's got shit, actually, this is probably a good thing. <laughs> I don't get it, but everyone else seems to, you know. Yes. And so that year they said, next year, double budget, take it to another level. And that's when I came up with the greenhouse. I said, why don't we build and uh, what I believe a house should be in 2040, you know? So we built the, I designed the greenhouse. And because it was a house, it had to go in for planning approval. So six months out, City of Melbourne have got the drawings and, and the VIC are going, nah, we're not going to let this go through. Because Flemington is about marquees. It's not, we're not going to start building houses because next year, everyone will want to build a display home, you know, which is a fair call. But at the time, I was devastated. And um, so I ended up with eight weeks to go completely redesigning a pavilion out of bloody... Um, plaster's angle that was all rusted that was all going getting recycled so the whole thing was made out of plaster's angle but anyway that's another story and then um uh, uh rob adams called me from the city of melbourne and said i'm looking at these drawings and i've heard it's not going ahead why don't we build it at fed square and that was the first greenhouse that was 2008 so the following year we built the greenhouse at fed square it was not really ever meant to be a restaurant, but to make it, you know, the 2008, the economy crashed and we kind of had to turn it into an event space. And I thought, fuck it, I'll just turn it into a restaurant and bar kind of appealed to me. And then I just thought, well, I can't have wine bottles. I'll go and speak to Phil Sexton and a couple of wine makes. Can you put it in a keg? And I'm not putting wine in a keg. Are you crazy? Like my only branding is the bottle I'm not putting. I said, yeah, but it's crazy. You put it in a bottle and send it to me and then I throw the bottle out. It's only in a bottle for two weeks, mostly, you know, so I managed to convince Phil and a couple of other guys to put in a keg. So that was the first time people ever really saw the idea of wine on tap and and then, you know, through that milk on tap and mineral water on tap and black, you know, I don't want these fucking cardboard boxes. Yeah, but cardboard's recycled. So yeah, but we don't need to use a cardboard box. Let's so managed, you know, coffee and in the paint tins. You know, we developed that with um and you know, all these ideas that are now actually quite normal when you go into a cafe, you see all these but Back then, you know, there's a lot of waste being generated for no reason at all. And um, yeah, it just went fucking crazy. I just went, oh my God. But no one talked about the fact that it was a house. Everyone just went crazy about the fact that it was a bar, restaurant. I had Raymond Capaldi doing food and and um, yeah. And then this super fun came and said, well, we've got this asset in Perth. Do you want to bring it to Perth as a, you know? And that's when I uh, got contacted by an old mate, Paul Aaron. He said, I've moved here chasing a, a bird and uh, she lives here and now I'm living here and, and um, I've heard you bringing the greenhouse here, trying to do it as a joint venture. And, and then he told me about Matt, we were trying to think uh, who's gonna, hmm. I was thinking of sending one of my mates over here uh, from here to there. And uh, he, I said, let's talk to Matt, you know? So he said, you interested? And he goes, nah, 
And then two weeks later, Matt called him and said he had a falling out with the people that he was in. in it was just meant to be, I think. And, um, and I think there was also a big piece in a paper, like a paper about what we were doing and going to do and that gave him the confidence. And next thing he's on a plane and I pick him up at 4.30 in the morning from Collingwood. On cue, Matt. Good work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, sorry before. <laughs> and um, we spent the day together and it was a long day. It was a fucking awesome day. And that was the start of really our collaboration, I suppose. And the funny thing was I had... I was obsessed with a guy, uh, Johann, Johann Schnitzer. He was a German dentist who in the 50s discovered, in the 50s, tooth decay was becoming a big problem in, in uh, Germany and he, uh, uh, there was one village that had no tooth decay. And he's thinking, well, why, what's going on here? You know, he was a do- doctor looking after many different towns. Then he worked out that that town still had a stone mill that was grinding wheat fresh. And most of the town supported this stone mill, whereas everybody else had adopted modern bread. And I read all of his books. I, I was, I, there was a great local bookstore, two bucks, I think I paid for the first book. And I became obsessed with stone. So at home, I was grinding wheat fresh. And, and I had people like, you know, some incredible bakers that were friends. I was going, you're off your fucking head, mate. There's, there's no difference to doing it. This, I just thought, bugger it. I'm not going to listen to anyone. I'm just going to do it. And um, we did it. In, in here and but it wasn't really there was so much going on but when I said it to Matt I said I want you to I want everything made from freshly milled flour and saying that now it's not a big thing but back then there was no one doing it like there was no one in Australia that I remember doing it and all my all my um, understanding of it came really from these books and I found this there was a, a an old couple a massive uh, Serbian couple that were cleaning Lamaro's restaurant and I used to go in there at five o'clock in the morning and do the flowers and he was a baker and he said, I learned this shit when I was, you know, doing my apprenticeship in Serbia. I, and so he gave me all this book. I couldn't read them, but yeah, he really was the one that gave me the confidence going, you're on, you're doing the right thing. This is the right way to go about it. This is what you need to do. And then a guy called Kent who had uh, Flinders Bakery that he'd sold, but he was helping Phil Sexton out. So I was doing the flowers there and then Kent would help me and so we'd have coffees and he'd say this is how you need to go about doing it and he'd actually practice it at home and he became obsessed with fresh milling because i'd lent him my mill i had all these little stone mills at home for grinding wheat anyway um he matt just said yes i said i want butter made from scratch so i want to get cream i want to get milk in bulk i want to get um spirits again in bulk was not done you know so i was getting people were just starting to make gin and whiskey Bakery Hill would bring whiskey in barrels and I just, wherever, I just started in reverse. At the end where there was waste, I would then work back and wait and design it out. So that's how my process. And it was just so fucking exciting. Anyway, I went to, um, Matt agreed to it all, but only recently actually at a talk that I went to, did I, did he, he said, I had no idea what I was agreeing to. Because <laughs> I was just so excited and enthused that I thought, hey, oh, let's do this, you know. And then he'd ring up his mates and go, how the fuck do we make butter? <laughs> it doesn't you know, matter, though, does it? As, as long as you can get it in the end. Yeah, and but for me, it was actually not, it was about waste ultimately at the start. The, the, the flour wasn't, it was about nutrition and about, you know, a sourdough culture growing much better when you, you when you've, which makes complete sense. You grind a wheat kernel, it's fucking full of life. Yeah, add a starter to it, it explodes. So a lot of those old books that you read, they don't make any sense until you actually get a wheat grinder because that's what they used to do. They grind the wheat and they make it. And, and you know, I gave, I gave my grinder to uh, a baker here and he used to do 400 loaves, 400 loaves a day. He turned up in the morning, he couldn't open his door. The culture, <laughs> it, he made a 20, 20 kilo batch with fresh flour. The whole floor of the bakery was covered with the dough. <laughs> and he goes what the fuck and he goes I never thought about it but of course yeah I fed it a living thing you know which is what you of course traditionally so for him too he was reading old books and it never made sense it never quite worked so anyway we started in Perth and um, off we went you know and Matt just was like yeah he was just perfect for me and, and you know for Paul as well like Paul was, was an incredible incredible bartender incredible he's one of the best hospitality guys in australia no doubt it gets no credit for it really um he was the manager of atlantic bar in in london you know best bar in london for many years 
and came here to, you know, come back to family. And uh, anyway, so that was kind of, I was bloody lucky to have Paul uh, on my side. That's why we won Best Restaurant in Australia, I think. Mm. We won Cormac Traveller Best Restaurant that year. And it was a combination of me, my creativity. The dining room was a totally unique space. Like everything was designed by me from the chair that you sat on to the plate that you ate from, you know, the plates were all molded off terracotta pots because I wanted people when they ate something to think about the plant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you ate out of a flower pot basically, but it was all handmade, actually all in Queensland by a friend of mine, glazed and, you know, and it was, it just took off and it went even more viral than that one. And then, you know, we got the invitation to Sydney and then I took each, with each project, I just took it to a whole other level. You know, we were using uh, 3,000, uh, three 1,000 litre IBCs as worm farms. You know, one week we'd fill one, the next week we'd fill the other. And that worked in WA, but in Sydney, I thought, fuck it, I'm going to make every person that queues up to go into that joint stand next to a composter. So I spent 50 grand and bought a compost room from Sweden and that was at the entrance. So you just saw buckets, the chefs running out with buckets of organic waste feeding this machine, you know, and that was really for the most people in Australia the first time they saw a, a commercial composter, I suppose, in a restaurant. But not only that, like that restaurant was filled with some epic, you know, uh, bulk milk, uh, you know, uh, milk systems and... and um, that was a bit hard. I remember seeing it. It was in front of Key there, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I went down and visited Matt like quickly had a, had a, not, not long, a couple of hours away one day. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't even think people had seen cut off, you know, recycled beer bottles in the glasses. I think that might have been just a thing. Yeah, well, we, we did it here. So one of my mates was Mark Douglas. And uh, Little Creature sponsored me. Um, and uh, I can't remember how, how I saw it, but, like, the first three, 400 bottles were half full. I said, what happens to those bottles? Oh, we throw them out. Going, fucking what? So I made them all, empty them, rinse them out of water, and then my mate Mark Douglas cut them and melted them down into beer glasses. We made a 1,000 pints and a 1,000 of the smaller ones, and we had 60 left at the end of it. They were all knocked off pretty much. <laughs> or in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just even like I went to a friend's place and, hang on, what are you doing with those glasses? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's like the jam jar, you know, it's hard to believe, but it actually was a lot of people credit the jam jar thing as that started with Yo's Back because I had an exhibition in, uh, and Paul Aaron was actually the bartender. He had just, he was here on holidays from London. And um, I had an exhibition. It was all about jam jars. So, you know, how, you know, people make like, all sorts of inventions yeah, to yeah. use, reuse yeah. jam jars with in screws the kitchen in. And, yeah. So I had like street signs where, with grinders that just cut holes and then they were vases, you know. So it was all around, I had 50 different ways of celebrating the jam, the jam jar. And so uh, Matt Bax had just started Derome and he was a mate of mine, you know, and I was doing flowers there and he was a really super creative guy, you know, and Paul Aaron was started to work for him. So Derome was a beer hall, Paul Aaron started there and got Matt interested in cocktails. That's really how it happened. And I was, I was in there. It was like just a really creative space in Melbourne at the time, really doing cutting and shit. And Matt was doing my cocktails. And so every year Matt would do the cocktail and I'd, we'd collaborate on it. And this particular year, um, I didn't tell him, but I had 600 jam jars. We had 600 people coming. And he goes, mate, I'm into high-end cocktails. Like we've got some serious spirits going to these cocktails. We're not putting them in a fucking jam jar. And I said, well, that's what the exhibition's about, mate. And they're all recycled jam jars and you're putting them in the jam jars. And Paul Aaron was the one that said, Matt, it's four o'clock. It starts in an hour and a half. Where are you going to get 600 glasses? <laughs> you know? So we had this incredible cocktail in a jam jar and that's late nineties here, you know, early, might've been 2000, 2001 maybe. And um, people just went fucking ballistic over drinking out of a jam jar. And <laughs> it just went from there, you know? And then, we had, uh, it was really funny because then two weeks later, I went to Durham to do the flowers and the, all the glasses are gone. And it was all jam jars. <laughs> <laughs> and he did these cocktails in a jam jar with a lid, you know, and, and, and uh, but it was a great collaboration. Like the following year, we had clear wine bottles that we filled two thirds of water and then froze and then put them in a brown paper bag. So again, 600 guests walking around with brown paper bags. And it meant that you could put a straw in a cocktail on top of this huge block of ice, you know? Wow. And another one, uh, we used to make these beautiful glass poison bottles here in Melbourne. 
and that company shut down and they called me because I'd use them, you know, and do you want the last thousand? So I bought the last thousand and we had, um, that was on the top floor of Eureka when it was still under construction. Nonda, who was building it, said, why don't you have your exhibition up there, you know? So we had like this illegal exhibition up there. <laughs> and I had another mate that was growing ginseng. Wild, he was the only person to have wild certified ginseng outside of China, you know, and he grew it underneath gum trees and shit. So he gave me 600 ginseng roots that we uh, infused in gin for five weeks. I had no idea that ginseng raises your body temperature. So it's like, we're on our first egg. Hello. Now we're talking. <laughs> it's still warm. Yeah, it must have just been late. Ah, oh, that is epic. That is epic. Look, it's even got it's speckles and it's cool looking as well. Yeah, so what started to happen, this was like, like I've had some pretty insane exhibitions. My exhibitions kind of became this cult thing where all the hospo people would come, you know, and it was just, I'd always choose these random spots. And that was like, no one, Eureka was under construction and no one had ever seen the view from there. And um, was that the grow table or? No, no, no that, that was another. That was, yeah, 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 yeah. that was when, before View de Mont took yeah, over. Yeah, that, that's that, right. Yeah. yeah. And um, everyone just went like, and off, all the booze companies were always saying, yes, you can have the booze, you know, because that, that would um, then, because I knew the hospo oh, yeah. people in Melbourne would come. It was a great way. It was the first time people tasted Truma or, you know, um, uh, we had a Spanish, that Spanish uh, Alumbra beer mm. that was the first time people drank it here you know and and anyway everyone just got fucking hot and we're like 300 meters up in the air everyone started taking their clothes off and everyone's blind and it was just the craziest party there were chicks walking around in grocon gear <laughs> taking all their clothes off because it was hard because no one knew that i was having an exhibition up there so the grocon there were people on the crane on the roof <laughs> 300 meters up having sex and you know <laughs> it was just out of control you know <laughs> <laughs> and I had all these like really weird, I, like every time I look at it as an opportunity, I thought I'm never going to get an opportunity like that again. So I always just go 150% and create this, you know, what I think is, you know, really going to make people think. And we had all these, created all these out of um, aluminium copper lines, these vessels, and I hung them so that when people got out of the lift, they couldn't see the view. There were all these flowers hanging at head height. And I just remember all these people sort of going underneath and there was a woman here came to one of the tours said, I remember that I came and I'll never forget it. And then you turn around and I hung a thousand Brussels sprout stems at head height. See, people were kind of walking through Brussels sprouts because there were all these little nails still because it was just a building site from the boxing. So we could just tie it off, you know, thousands. Where do you get a thousand Brussels sprout sprouts? <laughs> from, uh, I've got a mate that grows Brussels sprouts and he, he, he <laughs> He's always got too many and he just, I pay him a dollar for a, a stem because at least I don't have to pick them, you know? And people just love it, especially when you hang them upside down and you yeah, take all yeah. the leaves off, they're epic. Anyway, I've probably gone completely off, um, but that was, <laughs> a poison, that was a poison bottle. So we infused the ginseng. And then another, another one, we had uh, Oregon um, cut off cuts into the same size as a Prima container. And then we inserted these plastic vials and had the drink in there with the straw. So people looked like they were walking around with primas, but they were blocks of wood, you know? And like it, every year we kind of came up with these crazy things. Anyway, um, and Matt ended up, like he became quite, Durham won best bar in the world three times in a row. Like it became one of the best cocktail bars in the world. I don't know if you remember all the Oki straps. Yes. Yeah, so he said, he called me, you know, that was, he sent me an email from Cuba. He was in fucking Cuba somewhere. And he already had 600 types of booze, you know? And this is like in the early 2000s, no one was doing this. And uh, Paul had just triggered that in him and he just became obsessed, you know, and he's highly creative. So he commissioned me from there to come up with a cabinet that sat outside the bar for another 150 different types of booze. So he already had like 90 different uh, rums in. And I thought that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. So you gotta get, go outside the bar and then undo it lockable cabinet so i said well why don't we just, just i'd done the numbers i sat at the bar one night and i watched paul aaron and jason chan all these guys that ended up becoming really famous bartenders here in melbourne and they're all my mates as well and i was you know lots of people were ordering unusual drinks and i remember seeing jason trying to find the right bottle and i thought this is fuck so i did the numbers the bar was four meters by eight meters and i worked out that you could have 20 bottles per square meter hanging you know, 
from hockey straps from the roof. So he came back and I said, I'm not going to do the cabinet. Why don't we just hang the whole roof full of, hang everything from the ceiling. And so we hung up a thousand hockey straps. I put bolted Rio mesh to the concrete ceiling and we hung all the booze from the roof. That was, um, and I just used this little clip and you could just hang it up and they increased the yeah, busiest hour by 25% in the first two weeks because they weren't looking for booze all the time. They could just grab it. It was above them, you know. It's probably one of the most copied ideas because, you know, I, I remember going to Singapore six months after I did it and there was at Singapore airport, they had done <laughs> exactly the same thing, you know, to, to showcase a new spirit. Wow. But it was, you know, and so you can imagine how creative and exciting Melbourne was, you know, because it just meant you could, for 300 bucks, get a liquor license and just open a bar and be, it didn't matter that, didn't need to be high turnover or anything. You could just make money and yeah. And, and um, yeah, and I think that that really helped with Greenhouse as well because I've kind of forced all these ideas into the space, which meant at the same time, my dad's practical side, keep the menu fucking small, you know, just do what we do really well. One pizza every night, um, you know, one pasta every day and try and keep it to eight things and tiny kitchen, you know, everything wood-fired. And we were doing 120 loaves of bread a day, you know, in Perth. And Paul thought that I was obsessed with organic, uh, organic so much that he actually contacted Eden Valley Biodynamic, a guy called Dale, and said, we need 600 straw bales because we're building a straw bale restaurant in the middle of Perth. And um, he said, oh, they're the nicest people. We've got to try and go out there. So when we were building, we actually jumped in the car and went out there. And I just connected with Dale and Terry really quickly, you know, and they were growing organic um, half a dozen different grains, but they also had sheep. And, and um, I said, well, we're grinding everything. So I really want to, can we buy the wheat from your direct? And he goes, yeah, that'll last about two weeks. And then you'll just be buying flour. So no worries. In the end, we were buying a ton of wheat every two weeks from him. Wow. We were grinding a ton of wheat every two weeks in this little fucking stone mill that was just grinding its head off next to the, <laughs> and you know, so like a pizza was 200 grams. You know, a pasta this was 100, 150 grams. We're making 100 loaves. It's like, you know, uh, 500 grams per loaf, you know, and it's, but you had no choice. Like it was just, but everything was made from scratch. It was just super fresh. And, and you know, there was a lot, we learned a lot because I would say to Matt, um, you know, the, he, he got the bread, it's not working, you know, the way. And then I realized, oh, Matt actually realized when he came over, he drank from the tap and he said, I've just realized what, why the bread's not working. We're using tap water in Perth and you've got rainwater. You know, shit like that. Yeah, like, yeah. There was, I mean, and there was no one you could actually ask advice because no one else was doing it, you know? So um, it was just really pioneering shit and, and um, it just made so much sense, you know? And then we started making kombucha, you know? And, uh, from, and so we got our dairy farmer who was in, in Margaret River to start bringing us water, 600 liters of water every week with the milk delivery, you know, just off his roof down in Margaret River. It was crazy time, but it was a lot of fun. Simple, but, you know, it's like we're, we're obviously going to go backwards before we go forwards. Well, yeah. And it's, it's um, I love that, like, I went through a really dark period in when I closed Brothel, that was 2015. Um, I really felt that each restaurant was kind of, you know, like silo happened because I was frustrated that people weren't adopting the ideas from Greenhouse. And I kind of felt that the, the, the restaurant was full of every solution that you could think of. So if someone had a problem, just we, we kind of worked it out, you know? So why aren't people adopting it? You know, why weren't people? My dad said before he died, he died in 2012. He said, mate, you started the first one four years ago. So, like it takes 10 years yeah. for an idea to, and I now realize how right he was, but I decided to open Silo and make it look like a stock standard fucking cafe. So that if you and I didn't know anything about me, you walk past, go, hey, that looks like a pretty clean cafe. I'll go and have a coffee. And you go and eat and you walk out and go, that was great. And you would have no idea that you've just walked into a zero waste restaurant. So I decided to open a cafe, have no bin, had this epic chef called Douglas McMaster that was desperate to work with me. And he, we were doing like creative stuff together and installations and he helped on the greenhouse as well. And he, he, I really liked his passion. And I just said, right, can't have this. And he would just strictly obey that order, you know? So I had the perfect chef really for that restaurant at that time as well. And so we just worked with, and it was actually not that hard, you know, because of the groundwork, I suppose, that had been done with Greenhouse, but it just, that little 45 minute meter place just changed everything. 
because suddenly there was a restaurant that had no bin and you were sitting in the kitchen. So there was nowhere to hide. So everyone could see how honest it was. Everyone from Alex Atala, Renee Redzepi, they all came and sat and you could see everything, the whole process from, there was no chemical use. So you could see how there was no waste. There was no plastic. There was, and it was just small and, and yeah. And so I'm really proud of that. And then after two years, I thought, right, we've pushed that to the, to the, so then I came up with the idea of brothel where we actually made food from other restaurants waste. And that's when I said to Ben Shuri and Neil, I, uh, I called Neil first and I said, Neil, um, I was supplying um, Ben with tulips and stuff that he was putting on the menu at the time. And um, um, I said to Neil, I've come up with a concept, a restaurant, but it's based off your waste. Are you cool with that? And Neil, to his credit, said, fucking love it, do it. So I'd go to his restaurant three times a week. I provided all the proper containers because the health department were having fucking a meltdown over it. <laughs> so I said, it's not waste. Like we're picking up food that they haven't used. No, 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 it's, their, no, it's not their rubbish. It's just, it hasn't been utilized by them. That's all. And we're utilizing it, you know, all that sort of shit. Anyway, so I'm really proud of Brothel, but I was at the same time frustrated. And, uh, and I was kind of, I suppose, frustrated with myself that I had um, clouded the greenhouse concept with a hospitality concept. I really felt that if it was a house and not a hospitality venue, it would have actually been a much powerful, more powerful project and probably had much more of an impact globally. Um, and so that's why this has happened. So in 2015, I said, right to Matt and Joe, I'm gonna build a house, I bought some land and it's not a restaurant. You guys are gonna live there and we're going to create content and we're gonna survive off what is produced off this house and make people realize that we're sitting on the solution. And here we are. And then Fed Square said, why don't you do that here? So here we are back at Fed Square. Beautiful. That's you, a short version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, this is the best one I've ever done. I, um, I don't even have to speak. This is perfect. Um, uh, tell us quickly, let's run through here then. You gave us a beautiful tour this, to, today already and we've, and we've got footage of that. It's amazing. Um, let's rip through from downstairs oh, to upstairs quickly. I was just going to ask you to get some more beer. God. You are gold. I'm going to have to go to the brilliant toilet, I'll tell you. We're yeah, to I do Thanks, Matt, can you go to the toilet for us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should yeah. just go in the garden. There are some lemon trees yeah. out there. Mm. The girls good out there? I think so. Like Maggie and Stephanie. Yes. The chickens. Maggie Beer and Keep Stephanie. recording. I'm going to rip to the toilet first. You, uh, you I, I just heard the story. It'll be literally two minutes, Scarlett. You ask just a question quick. What what, okay, what, what was the question again? The question is. It's just like we're having beers at the bar here. This is hilarious. <laughs> the question is, let's whip, whip through a tour. Speak the tour through from downstairs to upstairs and everything that you've got going on here at the Future Food System. Oh, so the, the house is pretty much the same as walking into a natural forest. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing more important than another thing. Every element is as crucial to. So one thing feeds another thing. And that's really what this uh, is based on. So it's an ecosystem. And so when you have a shower and you generate steam, that's not a waste that, that's utilized in, the, yeah, in a mushroom. Yeah, I that. That's awesome. A hot water unit produces condensate, which in every house goes into the, and drains off. So we're utilizing that, which is, you know, pristine, clear water. Uh, we, we're harvesting water off the roof for rainwater and then utilizing that to ferment and have showers and drink and um, we're harvesting solar energy and we're harvesting organic waste. And, and so everything is kind of a closed loop mm-hmm. and that's really what this is about. Yeah. And so we've got barramundi downstairs. We've got barramundi. Um, we've got like species that are, that are actually quite easy to grow. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really obsessed with the idea that in the future, all of our fish come from aquaponic systems because I think that the ocean is, I mean, if an island like Australia, that's so, you know, it's the biggest island in the world, Mm -hmm. that's a continent that only has 25 million people in it and 75% of the fish that we eat are imported, we've got a problem, right? You know, if we can't feed ourselves from the ocean, then what hope has any other country got, you know? Mm -hmm. So, Mm. and study after study after study after study shows, like it's just, we can't keep plowing, uh, pulling, ocean uh, pulling the oceans fish out of the ocean the way that at the rate that we are and yeah there's a great solution with urban systems micro systems like uh, the potential 
mean, you, you go to Brooklyn and you see all the water tanks on the roof. I mean, the water is already there. You know, the water that they have on the roof to, in case of fire, that can under pressure. I mean, a lot of the big high rises have that here too. Why not grow fish in them? Or, um, you know, it's it's it's. But actually, ultimately, what this is about, and this is going to take a little bit. You can edit it out, but it's actually really about uh, this guy. He's another doctor for some reason, and it's actually interesting because. I reckon, what do you reckon, Matt? Half of the people that come here seem to be doctors. How, how many bloody doctors do we have? Yeah. So this was a doctor. And in 1928, he convinced the American Dental Association. He was, he was the head of the American Dental Association. He, and at the same time in the 1920s, the Geographical Society were coming back with all these incredible stories about, you know, people that, from all over the world, the Eskimos in Alaska, the Aboriginals in Australia, the Hadza in Africa, the tribes in the Amazon. And, and one thing he noticed from the images was that they all had wide jaws and they had perfect teeth. And at the same time in America, um, every second tooth was affected by tooth decay, tooth cavity, and jaws were narrowing, which was a huge concern to him that teeth needed to be pulled out to make enough room. Mm skeletons from a thousand years ago, there was no evidence that that, ever that was ever an issue. So that was a new, new phenomenon. And so he said, why don't we go to these populations that haven't changed what they've eaten for at least a thousand years and study their diet, uh, you know, intensely and bring some of this food back and we'll study it in, in our lab. And that first trip that he did was in 1928 and it was so successful, they ended up doing 12 years in a row. They did trips all over the world. And, um, you know, the Eskimos in Alaska had like one in 250 teeth were, covered, were, were affected by tooth cavities and, and the Hudson was one in 200. And, you know, there was a village in Switzerland that was disconnected and isolated and they had one in 150 or something. But he found an area, a population in Australia of Aboriginals that had no tooth decay at all. Wow. And so he attributes Australian Aboriginals of actually having the best diet on earth. Anyway, ultimately, and this is really a summary of those 12 years of work. He collected over 22,000 butter samples over 12 years because butter was a really good indicator of nutrient density um, from cows. And anyway, the conclusion and the summary was that on average, populations that were healthy all over the world and were immune to tooth decay and tooth cavities and had wide jaws um, had 12 times the nutrient density. So it was like they were eating 12 times more food than the average American. So he said, Americans are overfed and undernourished. And that was in 1928. Wow. And so that's what has inspired this building. And so if you, if you go back to 1918, the Nobel Prize was given to Fritz Haber for inventing the Haber-Bosch process. So Fritz, um, it's hard to believe, but in the 19, late 1910s, the, there was a huge issue. How do we possibly feed 2 billion people? The population is approaching 2 billion in the world. How do we feed 2 billion people? The deposits that they were mining in Nauru and in Peru were finishing. So Europe was able to grow its population really quickly because they discovered all these you know, mountains of bird droppings everywhere. And that's what allowed Europe to grow a lot of food and the population to really grow quickly. But suddenly they ran out. And so the traditional method of like crop rotation and using animals wasn't gonna cut it because they were heavily reliant on these other nutrients coming in. And then Fritz Haber comes along and invents a process where he's able to extract nitrogen from gas. Game changer. Then Fritz Haber works out how, uh, and then Bosch works out how to make like a hundred tons of it at a time. Whereas Fritz was making like two kilos of it, you know, mm. over 24 hours. And so they both won a Nobel prize for that process, which was called the Haber-Bosch process. And that allowed the green revolution to happen. And that was, when, that's the reason why we've got 8 billion people in the world is because of him, no, no one else. It was because we suddenly were able to bring nutrients back to soil in abundance. I think we used 5% of the world's gas last year to make NPK fertilizer. And it was really a game changer and allowed the green revolution. And for the first time in human history, we grew more grain than we could possibly eat and we could start feeding it to cows or to livestock and to, and to chickens. And, so if I would say to my great-grandfather, we're feeding wheat to cows, he'd go, you off your head? It's like, that's, that, that, that's the most difficult thing to grow and it's for us, like cows mm. eat grass, you know? So um, we, we're, at, we're at 
now at a point in time where we are so un- malnourished. It is like depression, suicide, anxiety, um, obesity. They're all because we're malnourished. Your brain's going, I need more. And where, where you might be deficient in magnesium or iron or manganese or zinc, but you don't know what that what it is that you're deficient in, but you're deficient in something. And what you crave is fat because that's where for millions of years we've got our, our minerals. And so there's this craving for fatty things, but those fats no longer can, uh, contain those, but so you just crave more. Mm. And so, and you see it with livestock, if your livestock are well nourished and, and you've got like, so happiness, well-being are all related to nutrient density. And I think that, that we're facing an epidemic and that's what this project is about. You can't solve the nutrient density problem. Like biodynamics is great, but I don't believe in the philosophy. And I used to argue this with Alex Podolinsky, who I got to know before he died. You know, you can't magically, you can't pull a thousand bottles of wine off a vineyard and take all those minerals out and export them away without putting something back in. You can't take chickens or eggs or wool off. I mean, imagine how many millions of tons of wool have come off Australia. The, the nutrient density of wool is off its head. And then suddenly it's like, we've got all the, well, you, you can't magically, doesn't just magically reappear. You've mined the soil. So our soils are mined. And to me, the only practical solution, you can't replace it with synthetic fertilizer because they only contain three elements. We need a hundred elements. We need all the trace elements. And that's what we're lacking. And all those trace elements are in our waste. And so returning our waste back into our food system is the only practical solution. Taking on the piss. That's what this is about. And, and about 75% of the nutrients that leave us is actually in our urine. So if, you, if you know, people that have an, have an issue with feces, that's fine. Urine's easy to harvest, it's sterile. And, and you know, Sweden is um, determined to be totally self-sufficient and fertilized by 2025. So they've put in you know, urine harvesting toilets and, and uh, but this project is really about just celebrating and saying there is no such thing as waste. You know, uh, we're the only thing on earth that creates waste. There's no other system that makes waste. It's just humans that make waste. We've designed it in. It's now time to design it out and we can easily do it. Well, is that why you're giving me so many beers? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need it for those. Can you see that those lemons are a bit lacking in uh NPK. I'd um I hadn't heard much about that until now, and I mean the best vegetables that you know there's nothing. I remember as a child eating at the table and eating tomatoes, and they go, oh, "What's your secret of growing these tomatoes?" And they'd be out near the old toilet system that had broken, yeah, yeah. growing down there. So, well, Dan Barber, you know, I'm quite close with Dan Barber, and we see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. And I remember him saying that um, you know, one loaf, one slice of bread today is equivalent to a loaf of bread a hundred years ago. So you, you, you see how physically hard, like my dad used to work in those stories of those physical, you know, dark start in the darkness and you dig bulbs by hand all day. Yeah. And all they had was like a, a, a two slices of bread with some, and so how the hell did that feed you? But because you were totally full. I like yeah. used to get footy players coming into brothel. And I remember this one footy player from Essendon saying, I need to eat three Big Macs to be satisfied. I go to your place, I have one bowl of soup. And, and I can't eat another thing. But that's because your brain's going, I'm nourished. Yeah. There's something different to being, you know, and that's, brothel was not my, I didn't come up with the name brothel. Weston <laughs> Price came up with the name brothel. He said in 1934, every town in America needs a brothel on every street corner because we would solve tooth decay instantly. All we need is a cup of broth every day and because it's phosphorus and calcium in liquid form mm. with all the other elements. And it's, you know. What do we do now? Well, how exciting is this? Like I know, being, I know. Under, Understanding and being aware of the issue is, is you know, like I think that there's so such, we, we've made everything so fucking complicated that it's almost, you know, you see it with kids. Like they're, 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 but the problem is not that complex. And I just see it as a, uh, and I think the reason why I had such bad years in 15 and 16 was because I felt that no one, no one was, aware that the solution is so simple and no one was interested. That was my biggest issue. Mm. And then Greta Thunberg turns up and starts protesting. And then you suddenly have tens of millions of kids around the world protesting. And then this Mm. virus turns up called COVID. And suddenly everyone is open to the idea of 
of of a new. Finally. That's what you said before, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. And it took forever, and I think that it's it's such an exciting time because we've got a meeting of technology. People that say that we can't grow enough food where we live haven't been to Holland and seen how much dope they're growing in rooftop. Yeah. With, you know, <laughs> grow lights. <laughs> they grow the best marijuana in the world, and they do it. Most of them are growing it on soil as well in their rooftops. And my cousin used to supply grow lights to a lot of them. I go far out. This is, and it just makes you realize. Like uh, Clive from Diggers said. Well, he proved 40 square meters will feed a family. You know, if you've got 40 square meters, this is 87 square meters. And this is only one fourth, one, one quarter of the average Australian house. Mm. So imagine the potential. Like the Rialto Tower pumps out half a million liters of water every single day. People washing their hands and the technology exists to filter all that shit. Imagine that whole north facing skin having a second layer on it and growing tomatoes up there. You can get 70, 70 kilos of tomatoes from each square meter. You could grow enough tomatoes on the Rialto to feed all of Melbourne almost. Is it the growing is um, usually the cheapest part of, of what happens on farms. It ends up being that, you know, from the second that they bring in a picker on 35 bucks an hour and the box and, the, you know, all the, all the rules around after. Because the guy, if the market's not right, they'll just plow shit back in. If they can't get this much money per box, we'd rather plow it back in. But what is it, 38 or something percent doesn't ever leave a farm yeah. of the food that's grown globally? But the system is so fucked up. It's, it's, it's off its head. Like you go to buy a box of Uncle Toby's rolled oats. You pay six bucks for it or whatever. In mm. the, the farmer's getting six cents for that. what's in that box. Mm. You buy a packet of potato chips, jumbo pack, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's 53 Three, $3.50. <laughs> There's one fucking potato in there. My <laughs> mate grows them. And he said, I get eight cents for what's in that packet. I mean... You can't make this shit up. We yeah. are so disconnected from this whole, you know, and there's not the true cost of really that food either, you know. And I, I just think we can have the best of both worlds. You know, I'm not saying that finish farming. I'm just saying like the world, it, the destruction is happening because of our food system. You know, the constant, the, there's a, the reason why people are looking for fresh dirt and wanting, wanting to cut trees down is because stuff grows so well because no one's ever grown anything on it. There's a reason for that, you know. It's not just, oh, once we've got that land, the land that we've cleared is fucked. Yeah, That's why we're constantly looking for fresh dirt, you know? And I know that because if you've got a veggie patch in the same spot for four or five years, you've got to move it because you've basically pulled it. It doesn't matter how much you try and bring that in. It's not as good as starting on a fresh spot, you know? So there's a lot of work that needs to go into making soils. There's a lot of work that, and, and, and um, you know, those soils need to be fed. We need to stop thinking that we're feeding the plants, we're actually feeding the soil. If you could give us some advice to every uh, every person in the world, what would it be? Grow something. It's that simple. As soon as you start growing something, then you start a connection with nature. And I think that for the last hundred years, we've moved away from being in our natural ecosystem. And even like I love going to China because in China, every single person that you meet has a connection to food grown because they're only one generation mostly removed from growing food you know that's that country has evolved so quickly that the person that's driving you in a taxi was actually knows how to grow shit because that's what they were doing before they moved to the city you know so my hope is actually that china will actually lead the world in urban food culture because they're you can tell like that i went to a factory that was making magnesium board and all the guys at lunchtime they all go out and they're all growing shit in the roundabout because that's that's the that's how they were brought up and they were missing that connection with you know growing cabbages and mm. And I think that there's, yeah, the upside, I see it with Stephanie Alexander's, um, all my kids went through the Stephanie Alexander um, program where you grew food and you cooked it and it is, it's a life changer, you know. Are we doing enough of that as a, as a country, as a world, teaching kids stuff? Yeah. Is that, I, a, is that a privileged thing to be able to do these days? Where before it was if you were sort of poor, you lived in the country and you grew stuff and now it's like, you got to pay for that shit? Yeah, yeah, maybe. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big person to i can't stand people that say oh scott morrison should do this i i've got no yeah. no interest in people that keep going on about yeah you know the australian government should do this i mean look we had a um, tony abbott in who did everything possible to stop people putting solar panels on his roof and we still got two and a half million houses covered with solar more than any other country in the world when i built my house which is only 15 years ago there were sixty-four thousand houses with solar panels now, if you don't think that's a radical shift mm. in a very short period of time, then 
And it's so fucking exciting to see what's going to happen in the next 10 years because it, yeah, I just, I, I'm really, really optimistic and really, really excited by the opportunities that the next 10 years will bring. And I think we'll shift toward, towards a more connected, more sustainable space. And the more we can grow where we live, then the more opportunity there is to start rewilding and replanting and actually pay our farmers through carbon credits and helping them start to plant, regenerate, you know, their farms, plant trees and some great examples here in Australia of that already. We are very fortunate. Um, now, how can people uh, learn about what you're doing, Yos? What's the best way for them to follow you and, and find out? Because it's, there's a lot to it. And I, I said book before, but, um, you know, there's obviously all the socials, but... Future Food System is probably the best um, Instagram account. And each day we put stories up about where, where we dig into a different element. So it could be why I don't use PVC or why I don't use FSC certified timber or why I don't use glues or, you know. So each day I focus on a different element. And the great thing about that is I connect through Instagram stories. You can tag people. So if there's somebody that makes a natural glue, I'll tag them in on it or because people always say, where do you find this? So Future Food System Insta account is probably a really good resource. And then we do live streams once a week. Tonight, we're, um, I'm doing a live stream with Anthony, who's been in the glass business his whole life, talking about why um, making glass in Australia is you know, great and why um, using certain materials, you know, what, what, how much energy you can save by putting the right glass into your building and that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's it's through that, and then my own Instagram account is a bit of a ramble of like a combination of <laughs> my kids and you know my obsession with flowers and my farm and you know I've I've got a little organic six acre farm in Mombok that I grow flowers on. What can um, I ask Joe this question? But you'll have a different answer, I'm sure. Uh, what can restaurants do, um, you know, right now with the resources that they got or not got? You know, like what what can they do? Well, the, the assumption that is that it's more expensive, but that, it's actually not. You know, it's um, it's 27% cheaper to put wine in a keg than to put it in a bottle. So you can either decide to, you know, push your suppliers on that. And that's one thing that Silo proved to all of us is how keen suppliers are to work with you to, you know, I called Simon Schultz, said I'm opening a zero waste restaurant. Will you supply me milk and kegs? He, he said yes before even thinking about it. You know, like producers and farmers are innovators in that, that, you know, they're the craziest people on earth because they're mostly doing shit and hardly making any money and they're passionate about what they're doing and they understand that they need to evolve. So you, as a restaurateur, you'll be surprised at how eager your suppliers are to work with you, but you've got to be practical. Don't come up with stupid things that make it more complicated for them. You've got to be practical. And the best way to be practical is to understand their systems and their supply chain and what they're doing because you can't put a, a concept forward if you don't understand that system because then you're just pushing the boxes to be thrown out by the person yeah, trying yeah. to do the right thing, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, and season, like with seasonality, I can't stress that enough. You know, if you grow, if you celebrate and use food in season, you know, a grower doesn't need to spray you know, and, 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 don't, and don't assume that technology is the worst thing in the world. Like, I'll give you an example. We grew flower, we grew lilliums outside. You have to spray them twice a week for fungicide and insecticide. Then we made enough money to grow them under plastic. Then we only had to spray them once every two weeks. Then my family made enough money to build a big glass house. They eventually only spraying them once every six weeks, but eventually we're able to stop spraying completely because the glass house allowed the condensation to be collected there's no condensation falling on the ground. This this was happened because of technology. You know, I think that there's this. Um, you see it with on Instagram. It's oh, let's go back. To, it's not about going back to the past. It's about understanding and celebrating technology. And it's like lots of zero waste, uh, banned plastic, mate. If if organic farmers couldn't use plastic, you couldn't have organic food. Mm. If you can't stop the the the, the hailstorms from hitting your crop, you'll go broke. You know. So they rely on plastic. If you can't cover your strawberries with black plastic, you won't have strawberries early enough and you won't have them late enough. Your season will be basically about half of what it is. Plus you have to spray for weeds, you know? And so the mm -hmm. plastic means that you don't have to spray for weeds. So 
celebrate technology and and it, you know and let's work to get chemicals completely out of the system because technology allows that it's the opposite of what most people think most people think we need to go back to the past but well, you don't want to know the shit that my dad was spraying back in the 1930s <laughs> you know what i mean it's like yeah it's understand the benefits that technology has and work with it Man, you're an absolute inspiration, and I, I, um, I feel overwhelmed by your your chat today. It's been funny and educational, and like I've just blown my mind. Just the tour we got earlier, uh, it really is, um, you know, the you're at the the front of the game globally i believe on doing some stuff and i know you don't take all the credit because you've got lots of people and absolutely it's, you're, it's you're, a you've got great people around you and um, but pre- the the best way to describe my projects is they're magnets. Yeah. You build a project that inspires people and they're a magnet. You pull people from places that you didn't even know existed and they go, well, I hear you're doing this. You get what you give, you reflect, you, you know, you're, you're yeah. a mirror, yeah. yeah. And celebrate and celebrate these people, celebrate. And the f- most frustrating thing I find is that Australians aren't actually regarded internationally as being sustainable. Mate, we're one of the most sustainable places. Like we, we Australians, Really, that's why we've got two and a half million people that, that have solar panels. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of fucking idiots out there that don't give a shit. But mostly Australians love and appreciate their environment and care for their environment. And we just don't have a government like in Denmark or in Holland that, you know, uses PR to sell their country as being sustainable. Mm. People don't realise that the biggest user of palm oil in the world is the European Union. You know what they do with it? They put it in their fucking cars to try and meet some stupid standard to meet global emit, to reduce their emissions coming from fossil fuels. Oh my God. And then the biggest user of soybeans in the world is not China, it's Denmark to feed to their dairy cows. You know, the, the system is so, and that's why I, I hate it when politics get involved because as soon as something starts to become subsidized, it clouds and, and distorts. And suddenly somebody that was viable is not viable anymore and suddenly oh well let's subsidize this and then everybody plants the same shit to try and get those so you know they need to stay out of it and just let you know i'm a big believer in in uh in this and 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 us choosing and understanding and knowing what what um and that's what i try and do with kids as well just don't and kids are much better at it than we are they see through the bullshit much quicker than we do it is an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you all day, and I'm sure you can talk all day. Um, it's almost finished. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for being a part of our little podcast. I think you should be on um, the world's largest podcast, but we're going to put it out there and hopefully no, try and make love it your difference. support and constant messages, and you know, from up north. And yeah, yeah love it up there, and love what you guys do as well. And uh, yeah, I still remember the phone calls. How do I get these black crates? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I still haven't got them. But, uh, but apparently we're part of an experiment with a big company who wants to do it with us. So, Unreal. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, man. You're an inspiration. We all know where to find you, and hopefully uh, we can change the world. We will. Step by step.